Just before I went off for the summer break, um, I got an email from the bishop telling me uh, that it was time for my ministerial review. They sent through a list of questions. As I read through these questions, the opposite happened. I actually felt a surge of energy and excitement that I thought, if this is what my review is about, I actually really want to do it. And I thought it would be talking about, you know, performance and what gets done and what doesn't get done. But the reality is, my ministerial view, review is about my personal heart connection with Jesus Christ and his gospel. And as I read through the questions that this person is going to ask me, I thought, I really want to have that conversation. And I've kind of, at no point, sort of studied it or looked at it, but over the summer I've sort of had the thoughts that are coming up for my review uh, in my head, and I've found them immensely refreshing in, in essence, kind of taking me back to the basics of why I'm doing this in the first place. Why is it my job and vocation to work in the church? And there are lots of things that I like about the church, but some of them are, in a way, no different from other forms of work. But unique and special to what I do are some core values and important things that it's brilliant to revisit and reconsider afresh. So this talk today comes out of one aspect of that pondering that I've been looking at over summer. And Holly's going to come and read a passage to us. If you turn to page 810, you can follow along. So we're reading from uh, Galatians chapter 2, um, verses 1 to 10. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation, and I went, oh, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running, that I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favouritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognised that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who is at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognised the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Thanks, Holly. The theme of this book of Galatians is of reconnecting with the gospel to 
re-establish connection with the truth of the gospel. And Paul's writing to a church that he's had some connection with in founding. It's the fruit of his uh, travelling ministry in seeing people converted and brought to faith. And he writes to them to kind of correct them from their deviation in terms of following Jesus. He writes in uh, chapter 1 to them, he says this, I cannot believe you have wandered so far from the truth. So the idea is that kind of they started in the right place and set off initially well, but over time it's as if their journey sort of took a deviating route. And now they've got into a, a, a muddled mix of Christianity where they've missed some of the truth of what Paul originally gave to them. Theologically, Paul tackles within the, the concept of grace. He wants them to be clear on the difference between grace, focusing on God and what he does, his power, as opposed to law, focusing on how well we've done, how are our accomplishments, giving us favour with God. And it's helpful to know Paul's probably two decades into his ministry as a Christian leader. He's not a newbie or a novice. These are kind of the words that come from someone who's been around the block a few times and he knows what's important and what's precious to the Christian life. And he knows what he needs to say to this community of believers in order to get their focus 100% on Jesus. And we know that Paul was a very driven man. He was um, passionate about reaching lots and lots of people. In Romans 15, later in his life, he will write his life mission statement, which reads this, my passion is to continue to take the gospel to those who've never heard. This is, we might almost call him a numbers guy. This is a guy who, who wants to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. He's an overachiever. He's a driven, passionate, big thinker. He wants to literally transform the world. But in this book of Galatians, he's sort of stepping back from that and he's asking the questions, actually, what quality of Christian faith are we nurturing and producing in the church? It's not so much how many people have come in, but actually, what have they come into? What is the quality and the value of that faith that they're having? Now, in that reading, uh, a meeting is mentioned in Jerusalem, and it's almost certain that that's the same meeting that's mentioned in Acts chapter 15, the Council of the Jerusalem Church. Uh, some, people, some people think this, th th there are some differences. It's possible that there was two aspects to it, perhaps a private meeting and then a more public um, meeting. The timing fits, so it's unlikely that there were two significant visits on the same theme to Jerusalem. It's almost certainly, in Acts 15, the meeting of the Jerusalem church. And you probably know that from church history, actually, through the ages, there have been different councils of the church that have, in a sense, responded to the needs of the, the gospel, those issues that are holding back the spread of proclaiming Jesus. And this was probably the first one of those where they dealt with some of the topical issues. And the book of Acts is, is like a, a kind of non-stop uh, piece of exciting 
drama. I, I kind of imagine that if they ever make the film of it, they'll get Keith Sutherland to play it. You know, he plays Jack Bauer. You know, you get the, you know, the following takes place in the next hour. That's the kind of feel that you get from the book of Acts. You've got 28 chapters of, of, of race, pace, phenomenal excitement of mission and gospel. People saved, thousands baptised, church planted, turn over the page. Another place, people saved, baptised, opposition, fights, gospel prevails. Go on a boat, shipwrecked, another opportunity for the gospel, a few more churches planted. That's kind of the feel of the book of Acts. It's non-stop, exciting drama, except for this really dull bit right in the middle in Acts chapter 15, the meeting of the Jerusalem church. Um, Somebody uh, once told me that they thought it was, um, Acts chapter 15 was a tedious interlude in the middle of God's exciting story. A tedious church meeting discussing boring practical things. But the reality is this meeting was incredibly important because it, it released the ministry of God's church to a new phase of mission. And the debate was about, of all things, circumcision. Um, I cannot miss the comedy, the, the schoolboy humour of that phrase that crops up in Galatians where Paul talks about the people from Jerusalem who came to spy on their freedom. So, okay, they're talking about circumcision. He's saying, there are these guys who kind of snuck into our church just to see how we're doing it in our church and they were spying on our freedom. Okay, there are no pictures coming up on screen for that. Um, in fact, um, I, I was thinking about this in the holidays, and uh, I, was visit- I was in a... Because we're friends, I can tell you this. Um, and I was using a toilet in France, and this verse came to mind, you know, like it does when you're visiting a toilet. And, and I started giggling... And then the French guy next to me, I think, um, wasn't sure what to do. And then I thought, I don't want to spy on his freedom or anything like that. (laughs) Anyway, that really helped me in preparing this talk. (laughs) You catch the issue that came up in Galatians. What they're saying is, in the early church, two main mission travelling ministries went out. The Apostle Peter went to the Jews and the Jewish converts. Those were the people who understood the Abrahamic covenant and for men the sign of that was the circumcision at birth. It was, it was like their identity card of their membership of the church. And then Paul had gone to the Gentiles, which was just the Jewish word meaning everybody else who's not Jewish. It means it's also their word for nations. Paul went to the, to the other nations to proclaim Jesus to them. And this coming together, was, was this meeting was in effect to say, are we preaching the same gospel? Does the gospel that we have have unity? Because one group's got circumcision happening in it, and another group's not. And I suspect there were other, other things they discussed that would have been different about the practices in their church. And the outcome of it was to say, do we have unity in our gospel? It was like the meeting of the generals of the church. 
It was, it was the, the first of what we get the word synod, which just means coming together. It was the first synod meeting of the church. And in their discussions, in effect, what they were endeavouring to do was to release and expand the mission work of the church. They wanted to affirm that those who were proclaiming the message were authorised to do it, and they needed to resolve the circumcision debate. Happy news, you didn't need to be circumcised to follow Jesus. I kind of picture men's prayer meetings in all the churches that Paul had planted, meeting, in advance of the meeting, please God, let Paul be right, please let Paul be really clever, let his argument win, let Paul win, let him come back with good news. Um, comedy was, the, he took, they took Titus with them, Titus was a Greek convert, so it was really high risk for Titus to go to that meeting. The, like, the outcome of that meeting could have been good or bad for him. And at the end of that discussion, one final point about the gospel is proclaimed. They say you save the best to the last, yeah? Everybody wants to have the last word. I used to love watching the... Um, the Apple computers presentations with Steve Jobs, the master of presenting. And he had this thing where he'd tell you about brilliant things. And then just as you thought it was finished, he'd say, just one more thing. And that would, that would be the amazing one. The thing that was like, that's better than everything else that you've just told us. They had a moment like that in this Jerusalem council. Let me remind you of what they said. They said, and all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing I had been eager to do all along. Continue to remember the poor. The very thing we had been eager to do all along. And remembering the poor as a result of this apostolic conference, that the stakeholders of the early church looking at the gospel and saying, what is this about? The outcome of that is that remembering the poor is at the heart of the mission of the Christian church. It's, it's an unremovable axiom of the gospel. It's something that has to be in there and cannot be taken away. It's a hallmark of mature following of Jesus Christ. Now I told you I... Um, this came from my ministerial review because in my, one, of the, one of the questions was to think about the, the things I first did as a Christian that kind of set me on the road to learning and discovering um, following Jesus. And I, I realised, actually, I used to do so much that was in the category of remembering the poor. And I still do some things, but it was as if in, in those early days... Actually, those were the things that most energised my following of Jesus. I used to be a volunteer for the Samaritans. And uh, I used to do the night shifts. And I used to do some of the shifts where you get the most phone calls were often the ones where people were least available. So I often used to end up um, doing those. And I, I, in the end, I stopped doing it because we weren't allowed to talk about Jesus. And, and I kind of went with that. But, but it, it just got difficult because there were times when I just really wanted to say somebody... There is hope. There's more hope than you know. Um, but we, weren't, we had to you know, all be the same and not um, promote something. But I, I love the heart of that organisation, that they were there for people at their times of most desperate need. Um, I used to help in a homeless kitchen three nights uh, a week. And I used to love it. And, and the banter of uh, interacting with the people that came in and the regulars and then 
um, you know, there was occasionally a punch-up that made it kind of exciting and, and memorable. Um, one of the last jobs we had, I had before we moved to York about 15 years ago, I was working for a church, and my last project was we set up a pregnancy advisory centre because that was that was a pressing issue in the town at the time, and there was no there was no option, there was nothing like that in existence, and so my job was to get the trainers and get the volunteers and sort out the building and the logistics of that, and that was the last thing I did in that job um, before I moved to York. I remember living, um, I used to live in Coventry, next to Coventry Cathedral, and I worked for a church for two years as a, um, uh, a it's called a verger, it's basically a glorified caretaker, it's kind of a caretaker with a cassock, <laughs> kind of Keanu Reeves, sort of that kind of thing, with a, with a brush, <laughs> maybe not as good, and um, uh, but because of where I lived, you got all the passing trade of the city centre uh, next, passing the house. And so it would be a daily occurrence that I'd get people on the, on, knocking on my door asking for help. And they didn't pay me much at all. Like I was getting, it was well before the minimum wage and all that stuff. Uh, so I had very little. But I kind of resolved, I would, help, I would help anyone with anything I could. So I'd often like, end up making people sandwiches. I used to get a few sandwiches turned down. Like I'd make someone a sandwich and go, there you are. And they'd have a little look and go, now nah, you're all right, mate, you can have that. And it's like, even the poor didn't want what I had. <laughs> but I'd offered it to you anyway. God bless, never come back, okay? Uh, I remember one guy knocked on my door and he told me this story. He said, um, I've recently become a Christian. Um, I've just got married. I've led my wife to the Lord. We're about to have a baby, and his wife was there with him, smiling, and she's like, Tommy. And then he said, Mum, and my mum's, I've been a bad man, and I hurt my mum in many ways, and she's, she's just died, and the funeral's tomorrow, and he needed a train ticket, and I need to go and make my peace. And anyway, he convinced me, gosh, wow, I'm going to really help this man do some good things if I buy him a train ticket. So I bought, went to buy him a train ticket. When I got to the station, then it transpired, of course, they both needed a train ticket, so it, like, it was every last penny I had to help him buy that train ticket. And then, I can say it now, it's amusing. Um, exactly a year, year later, a man knocks at the door, just become a Christian, just got married, he's got his wife, it's a different wife, just about to have a baby, my mum's just died. Wow, your mum's died again, right, wow. <laughs> How many mums have you got? He tells me exactly the same story. And my heart just sinks like, oh, my word. Like, you have done this so many times, you don't even know that you've asked me for money for the train ticket, which I guess maybe you cashed in for money after I paid for it. That's the hard side of maybe remembering and caring and giving your heart to the poor. The Bible says it's easy to grow weary in doing good. And these are the thoughts that I've been kind of thinking and pondering over um, the summer. Let me give you some reasons why I think we all should remember the poor. The first is this. I think we easily forget. See, Paul's writing to this church because actually they've easily forgotten precious things that he's told them. They've, they've easily, like incrementally, just bit by bit, they've, they've, they've just gradually miss their way little by little until they've got themselves in a place where they've kind of drifted from what it means to be following Jesus. Sometimes that comes in the form of 
maturity. You know, we mature. So when I was a young Christian and immature, I used to do lots more stuff to help people. But now I've matured as a Christian, and so I kind of do less of that stuff. I still do some, but I do less than I used to. And again, I think that's something that can happen. We can kind of, we can just sort of shift into the busyness of life and we forget some of the things that are there at the foundations of our faith. One of my privileges in working with Alpha, which is the other job I do, is I get to meet church leaders from around the world. And one of the the fascinating and striking things about the church in the rest of the world is that certainly in the developing nations, the heart of God to help the poor is something that every church has. Because if you are in a developing nation in a church and you are not caring for the poor, you would have absolutely no relevance in your community whatsoever. And in fact, in many places in the world, the, 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 the actual caring for those in needs at grassroots is delivered in most places through the church. And of course, there are charities and organisations at, at work. But probably in some countries, if the church wasn't there, most of the help to the poor would go away overnight because it's God's church um, that's uh, delivering that. And caring for the poor is a, is a hallmark of the gospel. It would be almost as if that if you had a church that didn't care for the poor, you would in fact just be a fake church. You'd be a church that just was meeting for your needs, not a church that was authentic in the gospel of Jesus. Another reason is, Paul says that actually they are to continue to remember the poor. And so it's something that we, it's not something we're either doing or not doing, but something that we're growing in. So that's the word for me. I'm, I'm doing some things, but I need to continue with it. I need to see it grow. We as a community, actually if we add it up, I think we're doing lots of stuff that is about meeting the needs of people in our local community. But there's so much more that we could do. There's so much more that could be done if we continue to remember the poor and its importance in the gospel. And remembering poor, if you read that epic book of Acts to hear what their deeds are, you will hear alongside the miracles and the proclamations and the church planting and the baptisms on every, need, on every page that they are ministering to the needs of the poor. That it was part of the whole package that came through their church life. In Acts chapter 2 we read about the early church that they gave to anyone as they had need. Um, in Acts 4 we read that, that the, in the early church no one claimed their possessions to be their own. Uh, but they gave to anyone as, they need, as was needed. And there were no needy persons amongst them in their community. Barnabas, who's named in this reading, is probably the same Barnabas who, before he began his travelling ministry, sold a field that he owned, took the money, and gave it to the apostles for the purpose of helping the poor. Later on in Acts, we find the first mention of this word deacons. And the whole idea of deacons um, is instituted in the early church because they wanted to connect with, they wanted people who could head up and lead what the church was doing in terms of helping those who were in need. For them it was a daily distribution of food to widows and orphans. And it says that they put their best team on it. 
They picked young people full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So they didn't just go like, okay, well, you know, let's just add it on as a ministry. They thought, this is really important. Let's get the people who will do an absolutely whiz job with that. Let's get, let's get people who are really fired up for God and are absolutely wise that will do a brilliant job of doing that. And many of them were evangelists or many of them started doing that and then as a result became evangelists because it was, it was like the, the other side of the coin, the two sides of proclaiming Jesus, one in word and one in deed. In James chapter 1 we read that true religion that's acceptable to our Father is to care for widows and orphans. Another reason this is so intrinsic to the identity of the church is that the very word gospel, whenever we say gospel, really we are abbreviating a quote. The word gospel means good news, but the full quote is in Luke chapter 4, quoting the prophet Isaiah, where Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to tell good news to the poor. So the whole idea of gospel has its beginnings in the fact that it's targeted at those who are in need. And Jesus identified himself strongly with the poor. If Jesus had any favourites, it was actually those people who were in need. He says in Matthew 25, I tell you the truth, whenever you do it to one of the least of my brothers and sisters, you are doing it to me. Whenever you help someone in need, says Jesus, it's like you were helping me, feeding me, clothing me, caring for me. And if you caught that bit towards the end of the gospel where Judas leaves to betray Jesus, and do you know what the disciples thought he was doing? They thought he was going to give some money to the poor. Now, there's no more information given, but I just think, wow, it must have been so normal that Jesus was giving money to the poor that they just thought when, Jesus was, when Judas left, because he was like the one that looked after the money, oh, he must be just giving some money to the poor. It's usually what he's doing. Jesus sent him off to do something. That was so normal, so much in the heart of Jesus that he was caring for the poor. Another reason why remembering the poor is important is that I think our society cares about these issues as well. That these are issues that are in the heart of our society. Now the church may find itself at odds with society on some issues, but this is an issue where church and society are together, and actually the church can lead the way. And I think it's particularly true for all the missing generation, the generation that's typically not in your average church, care passionately about issues of social justice, locally and globally. And a church that remembers the poor has a powerful message. I, th- I think caring for the poor is the new apologetics. See, apologetics means explaining your faith so that others know it's credible and true. And one form of that is academic, and it's valid. Well, you write a book about who moved the stone from Jesus' tombs, and you look at all the options. Could it be this? Could it be this? Could it be this? Could it be this? You go through them all. It's logic, research. You look at the evidence, and then the conclusion is, this is the conclusion. Jesus must have 
risen from the dead. Or it can be a philosopher taking, you know, kind of the musings of, you know, if you, if you think about it logically, there must be a God out there to be investigated to find out more from. A philosophical proof for the existence of God to be discovered. I think for many people, that's actually of no interest. That, that debate doesn't go anywhere with them. But what does show them that the gospel is true is when it's evidenced by a community of people in whom it's alive and the outworking of that is actually there's a community that cares deeply about the needs of its society and others in the world. I think actually a church that gives itself to remembering the poor is a church that actually will proclaim an attractive gospel that others will want to see. And actually, what you know, the apologetics may mean we begin with a debate and an argument. Remembering the poor may mean we begin with unity because we're kind of connecting with the, the common heart of God that's in others. They're responding to the heart of God. We're responding to the heart of God. And then we kind of discover it together as we go on the journey. I don't know if you've followed any of the, the, the reports of the, the new Pope, Pope Francis, but there's been a massive up in interest in the Catholic Church, particularly amongst the younger age groups. And it seems like, the, I mean, it's, it's a lot, I think it's partly because he's a humble guy, doesn't live in the palace, lives in simple apartments. Um, I, I know some guys that knew him when he was a bishop, and they said, he would always travel on the bus, even though they, they had a chauffeur for him and that kind of thing. I think the chauffeur just followed the bus or something like that. <laughs> something funny like that. Um, oh, yeah. Um, and, but one of the things is, he cares for the poor. In fact, I think it was several months in being Pope, he was sneaking out at night to help with the soup kitchen until he got outed, etc. But there's something about the fact that he's someone who cares. He's not in high office. He's not trying to live out that image. He's actually identifying with people have needs. People are hurting. Um, the poor need what Jesus has to offer and what his church in Jesus' name can offer to them. And the reality is people see that as highly attractive. People are drawn to that. There's something in, inside people that says that rings true. If there was a gospel then it probably would be reflected in helping people who were in need. In a minute we're going to think together, but we've talked about poverty and I haven't given you any definition and I don't necessarily even want to spoil it by giving you that. That's probably a whole different talk, but I reckon there's at least two ways we can think about this. One is the global. And global poverty, really the focus is on extreme poverty. Extreme poverty is poverty that will kill you. Extreme poverty is uh, probably very little of it in the Western world, maybe a little bit, but it's where people have absolutely no shelter, they don't know where the next meal is coming from, they have no access to clean water, they don't have access to uh, a toilet or basic medical needs. I think the UN defines um, that this group of people are typically those who have an income of less than a dollar a day. Usually people who have an income of less than a dollar a day are in some form of extreme poverty and that's poverty that will um, can shorten and end your life. But also there is, there is tons of poverty around all of us. 
of many different kinds. And I think poverty that's bad enough to kill you is clearly the priority. But around us, actually, we are interacting with people all the time who are poor in different ways. Somebody gave me a a definition recently of poverty. They said poverty is when a person has no choices. When life is locked down, that there's, there's no, they're just stuck with what it is. And there's no freedoms to make a choice to do something different. It might be that somebody's homeless because they have no option of somewhere to live. Or they're, they're hungry because um, they have no food. They don't know where the next meal is coming from. But people can be stuck in addictions of... of any and every kind. And in that way, they're poor in, in freedoms and poor in maybe character or self-control. That's a form of poverty that people can be locked into. Some people just um, have no friends, have no community. They're isolated, or they had that, but it's, it's gone. And so they have a poverty of friendship. And, and their life and the the, the, what Jesus wants them to be is marred because of the absence of that. It's like who they are meant to be as a person has been crushed and diminished because they've been deprived of that. And actually they just need a friend. I've got quite a few friends who are GPs who know, one GP friend said to me, half the people that come through my surgery, really what they need more than anything is a good friend. Like maybe they need, you know, and maybe they've come to me and they need um, an antidepressant or they need something like that. And actually there's a limit to what the doctor can give them. But the reality is, maybe if they had some good friends, their life would open up in a whole different way. But the doctor can't provide that for them because it's just like a medical consultation. But there's a person who's poor in friendship. People who don't know Jesus, they're, they're poor in truth. So that's part of it. Jesus cares that, that people should know he's, he's the one that's come to save them. People who are physically or emotionally or mentally ill are poor in health. And Jesus went around praying for the sick. The book of Acts, they prayed for the sick. Was it for miracles so the gospel could spread? Well, that was a consequence of it, but they probably prayed for the sick because if you're sick, life's bad. And if you're chronically sick, life's horrible. You're poor. You're, you're, you're physically poor because you're ill. And if God can heal you, your life gets better. And then probably you'll be interested in the person that healed you, and that will open the door for the gospel. But Jesus healed the sick, not for the spectacular, but because he was moved by compassion to see people's needs. Some people are bored or depressed. They, they are poor in hope. They consider their life and they think, I just, <clears throat> I can't imagine how my life could be good. I remember when I became a Christian, I remember the day before I became a Christian, sitting in a field, thinking about my life, just thinking, I am so bored with my life. And then I sort of projected my life forward and, I just, and it just looked like boring, 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 boring. And I just sat there thinking, what? Is the point. And it wasn't like I was going to, I wasn't suicidal in that sense, but I was sort of like, is there any point? Like this just looks boring, boring, 
boring. Then I discovered Jesus. <laughs> Little bits of boring, mostly exciting. <laughs> I want you to join me in my ministerial review. Not on Wednesday, okay, that's a private meeting. And we're talking about more than um, the poor. But as I've been thinking about it over the summer, I think this is a word for us as well. And I think we need to continue to remember the poor. I think we're already doing well, but God wants us to do more. And I, and I don't want to say, let's get a little department going, let's get a team, let's get a ministry to the poor, a team leader and a deputy leader and whatever. In a way, that would kind of miss the heart of it, wouldn't it? Because it's, it should be for all of us. And in everything we do, there should be the heart of the true gospel, which says we care about the poor. And this, of course, is one of those uh, opportunities that's, that kind of bursts out the walls of the meeting. Because maybe something can happen here. But the reality is it's more likely to happen down your street, with your family, with your friends, when you're at work or wherever you are during the day, with the people that you meet up with, or with just some random interaction where you you bump into somebody, that is more likely to be your opportunity to minister to the poor. And remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25. He said this, Whenever you do it for the least in society, you are doing it for me. And he went on and they said, Lord, when did we clothe you? When did we feed you? And whenever you do it for the least, you've done it for me. And so I think there's something almost sacramental about caring for someone in need. It's not glamorous, usually. It it may not be something you're drawn to. But it is something precious in the heart of the gospel. And it's like Jesus is hidden in there. So if if we don't have that in our lives, it's like we're not really fully seeing Jesus. But if we do have it in our lives and in our collective community together... It's like we are interacting with Jesus through our community all the time. I love the Tear Fund. I don't know if you've seen their presentation. One of their things is they talk about how they're working um, in uh, countries around the world, particularly, particularly developing nations where people have little. And one of their things is just helping people who have little develop a whole idea of something that helps them to do to do more. And uh, one of, one of the, the lies they've challenged is the lie that says, um, I haven't got what I need to do what God wants me to do. And what, what they've challenged people to rethink is that actually you've got, you've got enough to do something. You've got enough to start somewhere. So we might sit down and just think, you know, I, I want to I do all this and do all this. And, and the problem is it becomes so big that it it seems impossible and so it doesn't get done. But the reality is you just need to start the next time that you have an opportunity. Like Galatians 6.10 says this, Whenever we have an opportunity, let us do good to anyone and everyone, especially those who are in the house of faith. 